0: Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a message from our sermon series in Isaiah. Let's continue in prayer. Holy Spirit of the the living God, show us now as we open your word that all things are shadows and you alone are substance. Assure us now, through the preaching of your word that though all things around us are shifting, you and you alone are an anchor that holds. Teach us now from the wisdom of your word that though all the words of man are ignorance, you are true wisdom and convict us now by the preaching of your word, not so much about the circumstances around us, but about the character of Christ to be formed within us, that you may be glorified. Amen. Amen. The text for the sermon this morning is Isaiah 22 and 23, and the title for the sermon this morning is lifted right out of the text. It says in verse 1, the oracle concerning the valley of vision. And then it's repeated again in verse 5. For the Lord God of hosts has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision, a battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountains. The valley of vision is an oxymoron. You have a greater vision from the mountaintop and you have a far smaller vision from the valley. What we call an oxymoron is a word that seems to directly contradict itself, like cold fire, like definitely possible, like virtual reality, or like plastic silverware, or like a valley of vision. They tell us that possibly even the word oxymoron derives from the Greek compound word oxy, which meant sharp, and moros, which meant dull. So the word means a sharp dullness, meaning that oxymoron itself is an oxymoron. This, in this oracle to the people of Jerusalem, Isaiah calls them the, the, Isaiah calls them out for being in the valley of vision. It's meant to be a rebuke, a correction against Jerusalem because Mount Zion, Jerusalem, is meant to be the place for God's people to see God's glory and represent God's glory to all the earth. That's God's plan. And yet, God's mountain of glory had become a valley. And the spiritual vision that God's people were meant to have had been substituted for worldly blindness. This is the rebuke. God tells his people, you are just as blind as the Babylonians and those from Tyre and those from Sidon. And you were meant to be on my mountain to see my glory so that everyone would know the kind of God I am. The vision of God's people had been distorted, and this is why. God's people were looking down instead of looking up. And God's people were seeing the circumstances around them inaccurately. God's people were seeing the circumstances around them inaccurately as if the circumstances around them were all important. And they were seeing God as unimportant and far away. So people of God in the church of the living God were seeing Bible church in front of me right now. I'd ask you the same question. Have you been looking down or have you been looking up? Have you been seeing God as far away and unimportant? And have you been seeing the circumstances around you as most important? If so, you're stuck in a valley and you have no vision. Is that you? This is the theme of chapter 22. And it leaks into chapter 23 in the oracle against Tyre. The theme is spoken of to Jerusalem in the first half of chapter 22, and then we're going to meet two guys, one's named Shebna and one's named Eliakim. But the theme is exactly the same. First, he speaks to all the people of Jerusalem, and he says, you're putting your confidence in the things of this world, and that's a mistake. And then he will speak of two human leaders who make the exact same mistake. They're self-assured, or at least one of them is self-assured instead of God-assured. They're looking downward to man instead of upward to God. And that's the issue. And so I ask you again, people of God, have you been looking downward to man or have you been looking upward to God? The valley of vision is the valley of self-confidence. The mountaintop of true vision is the, val- is the mountaintop of God-confidence. Confidence. We lose our vision when we look to the plans of man and the philosophies of this world as if that's where we will find hope, as if that's where we will find answers. We gain vision when we get up on the top of the mountain and we see God and his promises as where we have our true philosophy and our true answers. Which is it? And I'll just say this, this is why I chose the book of Isaiah, which seemed like an oddball choice to some of you and you weren't shy to tell me so. <laughs> it's because the, the goal of all, of, the singular goal of any preaching that I do is just that you would see God. I think everybody comes in here obsessed about the way people are treating them and the circumstances around them. And hardly anybody comes in here obsessed with God and who he is and what he said. I forget if I preached my first sermon when I was 18 or 19. But after I preached it, I felt like I had no idea what I was doing. And I asked my pastor at the time, Pastor MacArthur, if I think I might want to preach, what's a good book on preaching? He would go on to write a very good book on preaching, but he hadn't written it yet. So he didn't recommend his own book. He told me to get this book, Preaching and Preachers, by Martin Lloyd-Jones. And it's been my, one of my treasured possessions ever since he recommended it to me. And the, the line in that book, with the question and answer is this, what is the chief end of preaching? It is to give men and women the real sense of God and his actual presence. That's it. That's it. We think preaching is meant to give us a, a how-to to make life easier, and there's some teaching involved in preaching that helps you navigate life better. I'm not against that. Or sometimes, ironically, we even think preaching is meant to be a buffer between us and the difficulties of life. And I actually don't think that's the case. Preaching doesn't promise to extricate you from the difficulties of life. Preaching done rightly promises to show you that God is present in the difficulties of your life. And His presence is what matters most. Not the thickness or thinness of the difficulties, neither the duration of the happy times or the sad times, but the presence of the living God. And so we come to the valley of vision, where we all end up because we look down instead of up, and we look at the circumstances around us rather than the God who is above us. I dropped an outline you know, to help go through the text because we want to get through all of 22 and 23. There's some leading thoughts in the bulletin, but let's begin by reading uh, chapter 22. We'll read verses 1 through 14. This is the oracle to the nation about being self-trusting, and then 15 to 25 is to the two human leaders, but it's the same message. The oracle concerning the valley of vision. What do you mean that you have gone up, all of you, to the housetops? You who are full of shoutings, tumultuous city, exultant town. you slain or not slain with the sword or dead in battle. All your leaders have fled together. Without the bow, they were captured. All of you who were found were captured, though they had fled far away. Therefore, I said, look away from me. Let me weep bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. For the Lord God of hosts has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision, a battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountains. And Elam bore the quiver with chariots and horsemen and Ker uncovered the shield. Your choicest valleys were full of chariots. The horsemen took their stand at your gates. He has taken away the covering of Judah. In that day, you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest. And you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many and you collected the waters of the lower pool and you counted the houses of Jerusalem and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall and you made a reservoir between two walls for the water of the old pool. But you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. In that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth, and behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. You can see that this oracle is about the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. And yet there's this contrast. I just want to show you the contrast. Here's Isaiah's response to the destruction of Jerusalem. Verse 4, verse 4, look away from me. I'm weeping bitter tears and don't even try to comfort me because this is such destruction. Contrast that with verses 12 and 13. See, in that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness, even shaving your head out of grief and wearing sackcloth. Verse 13, but behold, God's people, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. The Apostle Paul picks that up in 1 Corinthians 15 where he talks about those who are uh, mocking the resurrection and the coming judgment of Jesus. and say, well, just eat and drink and, and get drunk because who, who cares, you know, tomorrow we're going to die. Contrast Isaiah's mourning with the people's partying. And I would just pause for a moment to speak a word of comfort to uh, those here who are really doing the work of ministry, of parenting, of grandparenting, of spiritual Christian friendship. Because if you're really doing the work, eventually you will feel the force of this contrast in your own life. Have you ever been there? Where you see a friend or a loved one having a party on the way to their own destruction and you are weeping for them While they are reveling in their party, you ever experienced that? If you have, that's true ministry. And you could almost almost say to them, I care about your future more than you do. I'm weeping about your future. And you're drinking it away. This is the life of a true Christian friend, this is the life of of an elder of the church. Watching someone opt for the valley, the downward worldly solution, instead of the mountain of listening to God's holy word. This is the valley of vision. Could I give you another just little outline of verses 8 through 11? You see, verse 8 He has taken away the covering of Judah. The he there is the living God. So the outline's just three parts here in 8 through 11. The first part is divine action. God does something. God takes away the covering of Judah. And what happens? The second part of our little outline of 8 through 11 is divine action. The second part is human response. And the human response, look at it. They look to the weapons of war. They look to count how many houses there are and how thick they can make the wall. And they look at the reservoir where they can protect their water. So if the first part is divine action, the second part is human response. And the human response is self-reliance. The human response is they look to man. The human response is they look to the worldly weapons of war. Weapons, walls, and their water supply right there. This is, this is describing what they're doing, and it's talking there about this, uh, this house of cedar that Solomon had built, where they, w- which was a kind of a royal armory, the weapons of man, and it's talking about the construction plan where uh, I think Hezekiah built a tunnel where the water could keep coming into Jerusalem even if Jerusalem was being sieged. If you have ever toured the Holy Land, they take you to that, that exact spot. It's still there. I remember walking through that tunnel with our dear friends uh, Dan and Suka Bush. They'll, they'll show it to you if you take a tour of Israel. So the Lord takes action, but the human response is just to look to the ways of man And the third part of our little outline of verse 11, it's that the the killer second half of verse 11, but you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. Divine action, human response of self-reliance. And so the third point is simply that the Lord is unsought and unrecognized. The Lord is unsought and unrecognized. Can I ask you again, people of God, has the Lord by you been unsought and unrecognized? Because you're down. You think you have vision, but you're in the valley. That's the key, verse 11. And it, there, there's an ironic twist in the, in the language because he says he says in verses 11, uh, eight, nine, and ten, you looked at the weapons of war, you looked at how many houses you had, you looked at your reservoir and your human technique of water preservation, but you did not look to God. This is the oxymoron of the Valley of Vision. They've been looking at the walls and the weapons and human technology, so they were so busy looking at that, they said, why bother looking to God? We've got this. It's a this-worldly security it's a self-reliance. It's a looking downward to man instead of upward to God. Why look to God to supply us if we've got a plan to supply ourselves? Why look to what God has said in his word? If everyone in the world says a better way works, why not listen to them? This is ever our challenge. This is ever our mistake. And so from seeing the rebuke to the whole city, I said that in 15 to 25, we see two human leaders, but it's the same issue. It's looking downward to man or looking upward to God, but here it's identified in two leaders, one good, one bad. The leader is the royal steward, kind of like a a second in command. We'll actually meet these characters again in chapter 26. The first one, Shebna, is proud and untrustworthy. The second one that he's replaced with is Eliakim, and he's actually a good leader, but even he can't be ultimately relied upon. Thus says, verse 15, thus says the Lord God of hosts, come go to the steward, to Shebna, who is over the household, and say to him, what have you to do here? And whom have you here that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself? You who cut out a tomb on the heights and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock. Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O strong man. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you shall die and there shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house." I will thrust you from office and I'll pull you down from your station. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and bind your sash on him and, you will, and I'll commit your authority to his hand. And he will be a good leader. He'll be like a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. This... Applied ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ in John's writings in the New Testament. And he says of this good leader, verse 23, I'll fasten him like a peg in a secure place and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house and they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and issue every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. This is saying that a godly dad, a godly father, a godly elder of the church is a peg that is well-driven into the wall. And when people hang on him, when the family hangs on the father, when the church hangs on the elder of the church, they find a secure resting place because he's anchored in God with a life of integrity. But, verse 25, in that day declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way and it'll be cut down and fall and the load that was on it will be cut off for the Lord has spoken. So Shebna was untrustworthy. While the people needed him to serve them, he was carving a monument to himself. And God says, you're gone, and I'll give your leadership to someone faithful and godly. And so his replacement, Eliakim, is faithful and godly leader. But even Eliakim, though he is a faithful human leader, is not the ultimate leader because every human leader eventually will snap. I'm not saying every human elder of the church will violate his integrity and be disqualified, but I'm just saying every human leader is in the end human. And the book of Isaiah insists that the people of God need a leader who is human, who will never fail, this being the incarnate, virgin-born, Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And only him, only him, Commentator Matier says, Shebna trusted in himself and found his identity in this worldly benefits. Eliakim, by contrast, ran the risk of becoming the one whom everyone else would trust in. And each of these shows us an alternative to the way of faith. Shebna shows us that a human leader who is self-sufficient and self-serving can never be trusted. And Eliakim shows us that a godly leader who can be trusted is never the ultimate one to whom we look, ever. It's always a mistake to put your ultimate trust in man. Your trust has to be in the Lord. When we get down in the valley, we put too much emphasis on man. When we look up to God, this is where our vision needs to be. It all comes back to Isaiah chapter 2, verse 22, which is a verse you should memorize, and I'm going to help you memorize it right now. To memorize Isaiah 2, verse 22, this is how you remember it. You close your mouth and take a deep breath in your nose and out your nose. Because Isaiah chapter 2, verse 22 says, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath for of what account is he why will you trust in a person who breathes through their nose and all you have to do to end their life is cover two little holes and one slightly bigger hole and they will die in a matter of minutes? That's the peg that you're going to hang your whole life on? Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. Of what account is he? And I am all for godly fathers and godly husbands and godly elders, but I am never for any wife, any kid, any church, putting their ultimate hope in a man unless that man is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one. And I'm well aware that in this church there are many older teenagers and you have a father who claims to be a Christian but he exasperates you. Just as there are wives in this church who are in difficult marriages, there are husbands in this church who live with difficult wives. What do you do you do with that? Well, you rebuke the professing believer who is living in sin, whether that be the husband or the wife or the father, whatever the case may be. We take God's word and rebuke them. What do you do with the, the other side, the older teenager who's exasperated or the husband or the wife, whichever case it is, who's, who's, who sees their spouse not changing? One of the things that we try to do to help that, and I, I've talked with that older teenager about this. I've talked with that wife or that husband about this. One of the ways that God wants to help that individual who's, who's being sinned against even is to say, Don't obsess about what the other person is doing or not doing. Look to the Lord. He's your hope. He's your help. He's your shield. Whatever the circumstance is, it does end up being the case that the longer you look at the circumstance, the more your joy dissipates, the more your clarity disappears, and the more your confidence evaporates. But whatever the circumstance is, I guarantee you this, the more you look to the Lord, the more your joy will be restored, and the more your clarity will be emphasized, and the more your confidence will be in Him. You can always see the Lord. Oh, you can't always see what step to take next, but you can always see the Lord, and if you want to honor him, he will help you do so. With some of us, it's not a family situation, but it's just the the circling of the politics of our nation or the difficulty in our workplace or whatever it is. I'm telling you, your your difficulty is not going to go away by just myopically focusing on your difficulty. You've got to see the Lord high and lifted up. This is the vision of Isaiah. And he, he, he applies this to the topic of money in chapter 23 in the Oracle against Tyre. Tyre represents human wealth. Uh, I'm preaching this sermon at a moment in our nation's history where our money is worth a lot less <laughs> than it used to be. Economies go up and down. The... Uh, the land of Tyre what represented a commercial success. One commentator talked about Babylon and Tyre like this. Listen to this. It's, it's, uh, it's helpful. Babylon and Tyre in the book of Isaiah typify all human societies. Babylon emphasizes ruthless political power. Tyre symbolizes dishonest commercial success. Babylon was a land power. Tyre was a sea power. Babylon used force, Tyre used seduction. And so we see how the prophet understood how this world works. This world is always the opponent of faith, but this world is not only the opponent of faith, it is also the seductress against faith. So in Babylon, the world punishes those who follow Christ, but in Tyre, it also panders tempting believers away from Christ isn't that true the devil don't care how he gets you as long as he gets you if if saying oh if you don't if you don't offer a pinch to Caesar if you don't wear the badge then everyone's going to persecute you and 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 they're going to come down on you and that can get you to deny your faith that's what it'll do But on the other hand, if he says, well, you'll be so much more wealthy and so much more popular and so much more accepted if you just do this, and by the way, you'll probably even have more opportunities to honor the Lord if you just compromise in these ways, then he'll do that. And so this oracle against Tyre, it tells a story of these rich ships returning back to Tyre, only there's nothing to return back to. Verse one, wail, O ships of Tarshish. This is furthest Spain. Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is laid waste without house or harbor, from the land of Cyprus it is revealed to them be still O inhabitants of the coast the merchants of Sidon who crossed the sea have filled you and your many waters your revenue was the grain of Shihor the harvest of the Nile you were the merchant of the nations be ashamed O Sidon for the sea has spoken the stronghold of the sea saying I've neither labored nor given birth I've neither reared young men nor brought up young women when the report comes to Egypt they will be in anguish over the report about Tyre cross over to Tarshish wail O inhabitants of the coasts is this your exultant city whose origin is from the days of old whose feet carried her and settled her far away who has purposed this against Tyre the bestower of crowns whose merchants are princes whose traders are honored over the earth the Lord of hosts has purposed this to defile the pompous pride of all glory to dishonor all the honored of the earth we can stop our reading there verse 8 asks a powerful question who has purposed this against Tyre the bestower of crowns what Isaiah is saying in the Hebrew is Tyre does whatever it wants it's the wealthiest and the most politically powerful So who could possibly make a purpose against Tyre which would stand? Tyre who is so well advanced and so wealthy, what could possibly arrange Tyre's downfall? And the answer comes in verse 9. The Lord of hosts has purposed this. When you are in the valley, it's impossible to imagine how Tyre could fall. When you have a vision of the Lord, It's impossible to imagine how Tyre could endure. Oh, beloved, this is why our grandmothers and grandfathers in the faith, they died for Jesus. And as their blood was being shed, they were not weeping, they were laughing because they saw the Lord. This is the vision that we need in little things and in large ones. This is the vision we need. When you're in the valley, protecting your life seems all important. When you're in the valley, how much money you have seems all important. When you're in the valley, your current circumstances seem all important, and God seems small. And so I ask dear people of Racine Bible Church, is that you? Are you in the valley? Has everything been so big, and God has been so small? For Israel and Jerusalem, it was the threat of Tyre. It was a threat of Babylon. It was a threat of Assyria. And they needed to decide, are we going to look to the Lord or are we going to come up with a strategy of self-salvation? And so I'm asking you, people of God, have you looked to the Lord or are you spinning your wheels in a strategy of self-salvation? It's the ultimately the same issue for all of us. Though Tyre and Assyria and Babylon aren't our threat, the issue is the same. We cozy up to worldly offers. We sort of opt for solutions and emotions and reasons that make sense to the world around us. And the Bible calls this walking by sight as a rebuke because we're called to walk by faith. This is our perpetual choice. This is the crossroads you're at every time you're in a crisis. Will you demonstrate reliance on God or will you demonstrate the frenzy of those to whom God is small? When you are asked to compromise and say evil is good and say there are other gods besides the Lord Jesus Christ will you be loyal to God or will you shift this way and that with some worldly, plausible way to say, well, this will give me more opportunities down the line? Look to the Lord. This is the vision that Isaiah gives us. This is the reason that we preach the word. I can't promise you that a vision of God will make your earthly circumstances change but I can promise you that a vision of God will change you, you, your heart, your mind, your strength, your joy, your confidence, your clarity in the middle of circumstances. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I would, by the, by the, not by my own voice, but by the Spirit of God, I would even command you to look to the living God for salvation without which you will be lost forever. And he saves through the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're here and you are a member of the church and you are a Christian, I would command you by the spirit of the living God to stop looking down to breathe in your nose and breathe out again and say from here forward, I'm gonna stop regarding man whose breath is in his nostrils. I'm gonna look to the Lord of hosts who is all in all. Let's pray. Lord God, hear Heavenly Father, God, hear your little children as we pray. We are weak. We are sinned against, and we are sinning. We are confused, and we often stray. And so our prayer to you, Heavenly Father, is that you would forgive us, and that you would renew our faith, and that you would show us who you are. Give us the clarity of a vision of you, living God, a vision of you that will carry us through faithfully, even unto the end. This we ask in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org.